If you have your Bible, grab it this morning, turn to the book of Acts, and Acts chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. This is our seventh sermon in this series, and like I said, we're finally moving into Acts chapter 10, and I promise you we're going to cover Acts chapter 10 faster than we covered Acts chapter 9, all right? And there is, I can further tell you, there is a timeline for this series to end. It is before the end of 2022, right? Um, but here's the, here's the, the thing. When I plan out a, a series, um, what, what I'm doing typically is I'm looking ahead, and I've got a, an idea of how many weeks we're going to be in a study, and I've got a, a a rough outline and a breakdown of kind of where we're going to go, but then week by week as I'm working on these messages, as I'm praying, I'm seeking the Lord for, for what to say this particular Sunday, sometimes he, he changes my plans a little bit. And a, a good example of that would be the fact that I didn't think we would take six weeks to go through Acts chapter 9. In fact, I thought my original plan was that Acts 9 verse 23 all the way to the end of the chapter was, was going to be one sermon. And that ended up being three sermons, <laughs> because week by week, as I was working on those messages, the Lord was saying, no, no, uh, pull this out, focus in a little bit more on this. And so, you know, I'm trying to week by week follow the, the leading on, uh, the, of the Lord on all of that. And so I think, I mean, I'm pretty confident we're ending this series in 2022, but, you know, it's up to the Lord week by week on, on how far we we get. All right. So this morning is our seventh week, and we are into chapter 10. And the title of the message this morning is The Danger of Pride and Tradition. The Danger of Pride and Tradition. Let's begin by looking at the start of Acts chapter 10 this morning. Uh, hopefully you have it in your Bibles. It'll be on the screen for you as well. Now at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with another Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel had spoken to him and departed, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, we're going to pause here for just a second, because I want us to, to understand this man, Cornelius, because we're going to talk about him this week and, and in the coming week as well. Cornelius is a Roman soldier. And he's not just a common Roman soldier, he's a centurion. A centurion, is a, it's a rank in the Roman military. He's a commander over other soldiers. And his placement at this location, the Bible tells us, Caesarea, may not make a, a lot of sense to you or impact to you, but Caesarea was one of the primary places of Roman influence in this whole region. So this is an important location. He's a, an important commander placed there at this place. And it is said he's part of the Italian Cohort, And you're thinking, okay, why is that so important? Why is that written down? What that means is Cornelius is not only an elite soldier, but he's also a very good leader recognized by his rank, his position, and he is born of a particularly good Roman heritage. If you know world history at all, you might be familiar with the fact that Alexander the Great, when he was conquering so much of the world and spreading Greek culture all around the world, did something that was very unique at that time in history to him. 
what typically would happen when armies would go out and begin conquering other places is you would beat an army, and when they surrendered or you had captured their things, you would take the officers out of the army and you would execute all of them so that that group of soldiers you had just beat wouldn't rise up following their leaders and attack you again, right? So you were trying to weaken them, soften them up so that you could continue to move on and not be worried about people you've already conquered. Well, Alexander the Great thought that's a huge waste of talent. So when he began conquering other armies, what he did was he took all the officers out, like was typical, and he said, you have a choice before you. If you want to remain loyal to, to the city people that we have just conquered, then you will die on the spot, as is typical. But I will give you the option. If you will swear loyalty to me, you can join my army as an officer, and you can go with us and fight in our battles and, and serve the Greek Empire. Well, that's a pretty obvious choice for most people, right? Die on the spot or, okay, let's go on and, you know, take a chance and see if we can live. So a lot of people began to join Alexander's army. What was amazing was the farther Alexander's army got away from Greece, the stronger they were and the mightier they were because of what he was doing here. Now, I mentioned him because the Romans, when they began to come to power, had seen what Alexander had done and thought, that's a great model. And so they began to adopt the same thing. And as Roman armies went out and conquered other people, they brought in those officers to their own army, and they began to go further out with greater strength and greater numbers. But the Romans, as they did with so much of what had happened before them, they improved upon the tactic. And so they took these officers in, and they made them junior officers, in a sense, and their more senior officers to command them were those who were Italian by birth, Roman specifically by birth. And so when this text tells us of this man named Cornelius, who was part of the Italian cohort, what it's telling us is he was an Italian by birth. He was a Roman citizen by birth. His family went back, had lineage there. And so when he's a commander here, he's not just a commander. He's a elite commander. He's a senior officer that's positioned here. This natural-born Roman, member of the elite Italian cohort. And that position there at Caesarea, like I said, was a prestigious military base. He's there in a long-term assignment as a commander because he is a very skilled, very intelligent, very effective leader in the Roman army. Now that's all fascinating to know about Cornelius. I think so, at least. But what's most interesting about Cornelius is this man who's been raised as a Roman, right? Born there and, and raised in that heritage. He's been a soldier who has gone and fought in likely many battles, conquered many other peoples, all of whom had their pagan gods. And, and he, as part of the Roman army, went and was believing the Roman gods were going to beat those pagan gods. And as they did, he's seen all those religions crumble and fall. But what's unique about Cornelius is despite all those experiences he has, despite his upbringing, despite his heritage, somehow he comes to see the emptiness of the Roman religion, the emptiness of all the pagan religions he's ever encountered, and he learns that there is one true God who the Jewish people worship and call Yahweh, and he himself becomes a worshiper of that God the best way he can. That's what the Bible means when it tells us he's a God-fearer. It's not a generic term here. It's a specific way of referring to a Gentile person, someone who is not Jewish by birth. This is a Roman individual who has forsaken the Roman religion, the idols and the paganism that came from that, and began to worship the God of the Jews as best as he could without fully becoming a convert into Judaism, which is actually very rare at this time in history to convert fully into Judaism. See, the Jewish people, this is one of the, the issues, one of the great sins of the Jewish nation was they missed 
this point of why God had set them apart, why God had called them to be a holy nation, and they stopped being missional. They weren't trying to convert people into Judaism. They thought, we're here, we're doing our thing. If you want to join us, all right, there's a process for that, but we really don't care. In the end of it, we just want God to bless us, and we're hoping eventually he comes back and we destroy you. And that's what Judaism had devolved into by this time in history. So Cornelius is a man who, despite wanting to worship that God, wanting to follow the God of the Jews, understands he would literally have to give up everything to go through a very difficult, long process to actually become a Jewish convert in that day. So he does the best that he can. The Bible tells us he feared and worshipped only Yahweh. He prayed only to Yahweh. He gave alms, money to Yahweh and to the Jewish people. He was trying his best to worship this God as best as he could. And then this angel appears to him that we just read about and tells Cornelius, your worship and your prayers have been seen by Yahweh. And we read that today and we go, Man, that's, that's incredible. Wow, praise God for that. And we're celebrating that because most of us sitting here in this room, we're like Cornelius. We're Gentiles who are not Jewish by our heritage. We are not raised in that, in that old covenant system. And so we need someone like Cornelius to be accepted by God because we are Cornelius. We need to be accepted by God that same way, right? So we look at that and we celebrate that. But for a Jewish person, especially in that day, this sounds like absolute absurdity that an angel of God would appear and say these words to Cornelius. In fact, they would have objected to this immediately. That's not, that's not true. A person like Cornelius, a person with that position, that background, that heritage, that is not the type of person our God, the Jewish God, would accept and love. No, not, not at all. They're, they're unclean. They're unworthy of being part of God's chosen people. That's what the Jewish people would have said in that day. Now, I want us to keep that in mind, like I said, because we're going to talk a little bit about Cornelius today, and we're going to talk more about Cornelius next week as well. But when Cornelius hears this message from God through this angel that shows up, Cornelius demonstrates why he's such a good soldier in a high position. He immediately obeys what he's told to do, right? They say, send men to Joppa and find a man named, whose Jewish name is Simon, who goes by the name Peter, and Cornelius says, okay, and he calls together the servants and the soldier and tells them what to do and sends them off to Joppa. Now, let's turn back to Peter here in the next part of the text because you remember Peter is staying in Joppa. That's where we ended last week at the end of, of chapter 9 following that incredible miracle of Tabitha being raised from the dead, right? And not just that one resurrection physically like we talked about last week, but then many people spiritually were raised to life as they heard the message of Jesus Christ and believed. And so, so Peter is there in Joppa living with a man named Simon who's a, a tanner living by the sea as we're told. And he's teaching people about Jesus and he's following God and worshiping God and seeing God do an incredible work there. And here's what we see take place in chapter 10 now regarding Peter. So the next day, as they, the, the attendants and soldier, were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So here's 
Peter, the, the apostle, right? This man that if you're familiar with the New Testament, you're familiar with. He has a big part in the gospel accounts and in the early church here. He's faced with another unusual situation in his life, right? This time a vision from God that comes to him while he is in prayer. And the vision is this large sheet descending from heaven, and all these different animals are, are upon it. And that includes the animals that the Jewish people were, were familiar with, the, the common animals they would eat as part of their diet, and then a bunch of animals that they considered, because of what God had said in the Old Testament, to be unclean and things they should never eat, which included, if you can believe it, pig and all things from the pig. So next week when we have our Mother's Day breakfast and we have all that bacon, right, Peter would be like, no way. Don't want anything to do with it. Never enjoyed bacon the way you and I did. Crazy. So God says to Peter with this, in this vision, rise, kill, and eat. He's, he's fine with Peter going to get some, some bacon, right? But Peter's response is completely governed by his tradition and his pride. See, Peter's grown up thinking about food in one particular way. He, he has grown up knowing there are some things that are good to eat and there are some things that are not good to eat. There are some things that if I eat, I can glorify God and praise him as I eat them. And there are some things that if I eat that, I'm not worthy to worship God. I'm going to have to atone for those sins. Those are, those are things that would defile me and make me myself unclean, unsuitable. So when Peter hears this command in this vision, he must think, oh, I see what God is doing. God is testing my strength, my orthodoxy, my commitment to following what I've been taught to do. And so he boldly responds to the Lord, as Peter often boldly responded in, in the narrative of Scripture. He says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Because Peter believes, surely that's what God's looking for, right? This is, this is Peter thinking, I, I, I finally get it. Like, I've, I've messed up a few times. Jesus has rebuked me a couple times in front of everybody. This one, I'm on board. I know what you're doing, God, to test, and I've got the right answer. I need to be committed to the traditions of the past, to the way things have always been done, to, to doing what I was raised to do. So he says, with pride, notice that. No way, Lord, I have always, always followed this tradition. I have always done what I was supposed to do. Of course, Peter, we know, is not a perfect man, but, but he's pretty confident here and pretty proud of the fact that he's always obeyed the dietary laws, so he feels like, surely I'm nailing this one. I'm going to get a well-done Peter. Congratulations in this vision. But that's not quite what happens. Look at the next few verses in 10 there. Starting in verse 15, but the voice came to him again a second time and said, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And then the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. So, what takes place in the word of God to Peter is the exact opposite of what Peter thought was going on, right? God rebukes him for his response. And then repeats the vision and this command three times for Peter. Now, I find that interesting that he does this three times because if, if you know your Bible, you can think about Peter's own life over the last couple of years too. And this uh, something occurring three times has happened before to Peter, right? Like we just came off of Easter and the Good Friday celebration. And so if you're familiar, if you read through those texts as we came up to the Easter season, you know that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had told the disciples, you'll all fall away from me. You'll all deny me. You'll all flee. Peter says, no, you know, if everyone else does, not me. I've, I've got this. I, you know, I know the right answer, Lord. And then he does that. 
denies Jesus, not just once, not just twice, but, but three times, right? Then, if you know your Bible, in John chapter 21, after the resurrection, Jesus comes to Peter, who's feeling discouraged, who's feeling like, okay, I've, I've failed you, Lord, not just once, not just twice, but three times. I'm not worthy to, to follow you and to do the things you've asked me to do. And so Peter's gone back to fishing, and Jesus shows up to him, resurrected, and talks with Peter, and three times says the same thing to him and gives him this command that becomes the, the basis for his restoration And he repeats it, not just once, not just twice, but three times, right? So I think Peter, at least by this point, is going, okay, if something takes place three times, I got to pay attention. I got to know this is important from the Lord, right? And so three times he's rebuked here by God for his response. But it still takes Peter, though he understands, okay, this is important. I got to get this. The text tells us he is perplexed. He is still confused. He's trying to understand What is the meaning of what you have just shown me and said, Lord? The reason why it's so difficult for Peter, it's easy for us to to hate on Peter and to think, come on, Peter, you're so slow. Like, why don't you, come on, get on this, you know, or can't believe you gave that response. But really, the reason it's so difficult for Peter is because God is confronting something in Peter that's deeply seated in him and is deeply seated in you and I and takes a bit of time for us to overcome. Peter took pride in his traditionalism, and he thought that made him better than other people. You and I fall into this same trap today. For Peter, it's primarily seen here in the fact it's all around the food laws, right? Eating kosher, according to Jewish customs. But it's also seen in how he treats and views outsiders He didn't just think in terms of clean, unclean animals. He thought in terms of clean people like him and unclean people who are different than me. That's how Peter viewed the whole world. That's what the traditionalism of Peter's upbringing, of Peter's life at this point, taught him. There's partiality in the worldview of Peter. So Peter is struggling to see how people who are different than him, who live different than him, who eat different than him, who dress different than him, who think differently than him and do different things than the things he's always done, how could those people be loved and accepted by God and brought into the church? At this point, the primary converts into Christianity are the Jewish people. And they're struggling. People like Peter are struggling to see how could it be that a Gentile, someone who's totally different than us, could be part of the church family. This is still what they're working through, still what God is growing them through. And God, through this encounter with Peter, is about to confront that in a dramatic way that begins to change everything for the mission of the church to finally do what God has always intended, and that is bring people from, as we've talked about before, every tribe and language and people group into his kingdom to the worship of him. But before we get to that and how God does this and his encounter with Peter in the next few verses, I want us to think honestly about how, like I just said, we are just like Peter. And we ourselves have to deal with the danger of pride and tradition in our own lives. Because it is a power arrayed against us. It is a danger to us. It is something that's going to take work for us to grow past personally. Just like Peter, we all have certain traditions that we have embraced and are innately tempted To think, like Peter, following these traditions makes me a better follower of God than someone else who does things differently. So we're going to get a little bit personal. We're going to let the Lord expose our hearts a little bit, make us a little bit uncomfortable. 
And see, in times past, we've had meetings and we've had you know, dialogues and conversations, and many of you are like, you know, Pastor, we, it's good when you, when you step on our toes a little bit and those convicting messages, we need more of those. And then we get to this moment and you're thinking, why in the world did I ever say that? Because <laughs> this will be a little challenging for some of us. It's challenging for me this week, thinking about all of this, examining myself in, in all of this. I have my traditions too. But for a lot of us, the challenge that we have to overcome is the religious traditions that we have embraced only really come from what we have grown up seeing or experiencing personally, and not from this is what the Lord has clearly said to do. We get those two things confused quite a bit. So let's give some examples. Let's think about this in our own lives. A lot of people have particular certain expectations from religious tradition about how one should dress and what one should wear, particularly when you come to church. Some of us feel that very strongly for ourselves, and most of us feel that pretty strongly about other people and what they wear. So for today, some of you actually could even be uncomfortable that here I am in this BGMC polo, and I'm in, I'm in slacks. Imagine if I was in jeans. Woo, you know, that'd be a whole other thing. But you're uncomfortable because this is not the tradition that you have seen practice normally. This is not what we have typically done. I mean, and for me, I feel it too. Like I'm getting up and Malia's like, well, what are you going to wear today? I'm like, I'm going to wear the BGMC shirt. Really? Yeah, I'm going to, you know? And so there's, I get it. I feel it too. But we have traditions that sometimes make us uncomfortable when they're confronted, right? Even though if you're, if you're a pretty biblically sound Christian, if you've kind of been able to process through some of this, you know you can't think of a single verse in the Bible that says the pastor has to wear a suit. And if you're really biblically literate, you, you know Jesus and the apostles never wore suits. <laughs> Didn't have them, right? But you expect that. You prefer that, perhaps, even. Why? Because of our tradition. Another area of tradition, I'm just going to move on to another one, let that, you, know, you, can, you can process that, we're not doing a show of hands, how many are uncomfortable? None of that. Here's another area that I want to think about, is the ever-challenging area of music. I'm going to get real quiet now. Like, this is why so many churches have conflicts over the songs, because the traditions that we embrace personally are deeply embedded in us personally. And typically, what that leads to is the pride of thinking Our preferred songs, our preferred styles are surely the most accepted by God. Why can't everybody just do the ones I like? Because God likes them better, right? That's what we think on some level, on some level. But we've talked about this many times before, and I've I've explained to you, the Bible talks a lot about our worship, but here's what the Bible tells us about our songs and what we sing to the Lord. It's acceptable and right and good in God's ears when it's true, doctrinally sound, and when our hearts are engaged in actually praising God through what we're singing. That's the criteria. Not a certain style, not a certain lyric set, not a certain rhythm, the style, the age, whether or not it was ever put into a hymn book, none of that actually makes a difference to God. What matters is the truth of the song, the words that we are singing, and how that is aligned with our hearts. Are we focused on God? Are we using those words to truly praise God and worship Him? Or... Are when we come together in a worship service and it's songs that aren't our preferences, songs that aren't from our tradition, songs that we're not as comfortable with, are we letting our preferences and those things become our God and distract us from true worship? So we don't even sing or we just half-heartedly mumble the words along or we let our minds drift to something else. The Bible talks about worship as being concerned about what we sing and how we sing it, where our heart is. 
And again, let's take it back to Jesus. I hope you understand, this may be shocking to some of you, but Jesus and the apostles never once sang your favorite hymn. No matter how much you love it, how many times you've sang it, how many great memories you have, how much of a classic it is, listen, Jesus never sang your favorite hymn because he never sang a single song ever in English. He worshiped the Lord in Hebrew <laughs> with a whole different rhythm and, and meter to the, to the music. It didn't sound like our worship sounds like. But we all have our traditions. We all have our preferences, right? And those are not bad things. They're not bad things. But they can become very dangerous things when they get the wrong position in our hearts, right? All right, let's go to one more, because <clears throat> why not? Another area where religious tradition comes up is in terms of our preferred Bible translations, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unpack this one a little bit more, and I'm going to give you a little bit more here because I think it's really, really important, and I don't want you to ever get uh, the wrong idea about the Bible because the Bible is so incredibly central to our lives as Christians. So we've talked about this before. I can talk about this a lot longer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this short because I see the time, but I've done two hours of teaching on this. It's on our YouTube channel. I can do multiple hours of that with you if you want to have this conversation. And I hope you do. If you're struggling with this, please do come talk to me. It's very, very important to think rightly about this. Here's the reality, though. Almost every one of us has a preferred translation of the Bible. And most of the reason why it's our preferred translation has to do with what you grew up using or what you began reading and really understanding, right? There are a lot of good English translations available to us today. And in this room, there are several different English translations that are brought in here. And I'm fine with you having a preference and having a preferred one and using that and not at all. I've never once said, oh, I have never once told you, you must use this translation of the Bible. Never. And I won't tell you that. There are many good English translations for you to use. So let me be clear. There's not one perfect translation of the Bible in English. And God is not more pleased if you read the King James Version, the New International Version, the New American Standard Version, or the English Standard Version. You can read any of those and glorify God. Now, you can have your preference, like I said, and if you do, here's my prayer for you. No matter what your preference is, I want you to regularly read your Bible in your preferred translation that you are understanding and you are growing from and you are hearing God speak to you. That's my main concern. If you want to read the NIV or the ESV or the King James and it's God speaking to you, you're understanding it, you're growing, great, use it. And I, again, I, I want to be really clear. I don't have any axe to grind against the King James Bible, but I do want to address this because the most common way I see tradition and preferences come out are from people who value the King James version of the Bible over other versions of the Bible. And some go as far as saying that's the only version of the Bible you should be using. King James onlyists, we call them. So listen, if you read the King James primarily, you've been doing that for years, you love it, and you understand it, awesome, wonderful, use your King James. But hear me very clearly, the King James Version is not the best English translation that exists. It's not the only version a true Christian should use. There are some problems with the King James Version of the Bible, just like there are some problems with every other English translation of the Bible, too. There's nothing perfect in English, because the Bible was not written in English. They're all translations from the Greek and from the Hebrew. And again, let's go back to Jesus. You, you do remember Jesus and the apostles did not have leather-bound King James versions of the Bibles that they carried <laughs> with their suits that they didn't wear, <laughs> right? They read the scriptures, actually primarily in Greek, 
or in Hebrew, they never read the Bible in English. So Jesus didn't say thee and thou, in case you were wondering. Those are English words that he didn't, he didn't say. He didn't speak English at all. We are reading Bibles in our native language because they're translated from the original languages, and you always have to keep that in mind when you study the Bible. Finding the true meaning of a text doesn't mean I'm reading it in my ESV, now let me look in my King James, oh, and that's what it really meant. No, the original meaning of the text is found in the original languages, which is why we have to be able to go back to the Greek and the Hebrew, and most of you can't do that. I understand that. That's why there's wonderful tools that help us do that, that you can use, that are very accessible to you, and that's why pastors do this. It's why we're set aside for the work of studying the Word of God. You can say, I don't understand this verse, and come ask me, and I can help you understand it. We can go, I can pull up my resources, we can look at the Greek, the Hebrew, and find the original meaning of, of a text, right? So, again, here, I'm, I'm, I'm dragging this out, but I am moving quickly, amazingly, uh, whether you think so or not. Here's the other thing I want to address very briefly. Some people, when they want to say, well, we should only read the King James Version of the Bible, or it's the best version, or whatever, will go farther than that and say, the issue is, all these other newer translations are missing verses. Have you heard this before? That other translations are missing verses in the Bible. Let me tell you very clearly, they're not. There is no missing verse in the Bible, Nothing has been taken out and hidden from you if you read the ESV or the New American Standard that was there in the King James. Nobody, there's no conspiratorial movement. It doesn't have anything to do with publishers and who owns who. They're not taking things out of the Bible and hiding them from you. There are instances, though, where as you're reading the text, if you're paying attention to those little numbers, you notice, well, there are places where it goes, for instance, John chapter 5, from verse 3 to verse 5. Why is that? There's a very good reason for that, and I'll explain to you why that one particular thing happens very quickly. Again, I'm, I'm trying to move quickly. If you're reading in the King James, you're going to read in John chapter 5, verses 3, 4, and 5, just like you'd expect. If you read in the ESV, however, you're going to read verse 3 and then verse 5. And let me explain to you why that is the case. In your new translation, whatever you have, NIV, ESV, New American Standard, whatever, you're going to have a little note, a little footnote icon there, and you're going to have a note probably at the bottom of your page that says, some manuscripts insert wholly or in part, and then all those words that you found in the King James at verse 4. The reason they're down there, though, is because the King James Version translators, when they did all their work in 1611, put them there at verse 4 when they really shouldn't have been. They made a mistake. The reason we know they made a mistake is the limit of what they had available to them. So when the New Testament was translated from Greek for the King James translators in 1611, they had seven printed Greek, man, Greek uh, text in front of them based on less than 12 manuscripts. Manuscripts being handwritten copies that went back way, way further into the past, closer to the time of the early church. And what they saw was some of those manuscripts have those words there at verse 4. And they thought, well, if they're there in some but not in others, and we don't know why they're in some but not others, we don't want to leave anything out. We don't want to miss anything God said, so let's put them in. So that's what they did. And then as they numbered the chapters and verses, they put the number in there, and it turned out to be all of verse 4. But remember, Jesus and the apostles didn't speak chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 2, right? Those things are added on by us to help us more quickly navigate our scriptures and find verses. Those, those didn't come about to the Middle Ages. They're not there from the words of Jesus or the apostles. So we know what the King James translators did and why we now, in a modern translation, will put that down in a footnote is because 
unlike what the King James translators had available to them, less than 12 Greek manuscripts, today we have a plethora of resources available to us. Did you know there's over 5,800 Greek manuscripts or fragments available to us today? That's incredible. That's the most well-attested verse, uh, uh, text from antiquity ever. So much resource. And here's what's crazy. With modern technology and communication, all the things we have, translators can see all 5,800 of those when they go to translate, plus 10,000 Latin manuscripts, plus about a dozen early uh, translations into other languages, Coptic, Ethiopic, and others that took place in the first couple hundred years, and over one million citations of scripture in the early church fathers writing in Greek. Tons and tons of data, and any translator can see all of it. I can see all of it. I have these resources in my library. I can go and look at a text and say, what manuscript written in what year said what? Isn't that amazing? What a gift of God's grace. We have a ton of information available to us today. And so what we have with all that information us today is the ability to see some things that a guy working with less than 12 manuscripts could not see. So in this case of John 5, let me read to you what the text says. Here's it in the ESV, verses 2 to 5. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, and jumps to verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Here's what people will tell you is missing from your Bible, was taken out. There's a big conspiracy to hide this from you. Here's what it was in the King James, starting in verse 2. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In, there, in these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. Verse 4, notice this. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water, and whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And then verse 5. And a certain man was there who had had an infirmity thirty and eight years. These words of John 5, verse 4, we can see now with all the resources we have, originated as words written in the margin, the side column of a manuscript that was being copied by hand, because that's how you had to write copies of manuscripts until the printing press, right? And then until the Xerox, right, where we can photocopy a page. I mean, it takes a lot of work to copy every word down by hand, right? And that's what was done for a long time. So in the margin was this little thing that turns out what's verse 4 here in the King James was written over in the margin. Now, the reason it got there is probably because the scribe writing it down was making a note to explain why are all those people sitting by that pool waiting to be healed? Well, this was the Jewish tradition, and he likely had heard someone teach that, maybe a pastor like me explaining it in a sermon. Here's the tradition, here's the background. So he made a little note. Oh, that's helpful. Let me put that down here. Well, now, go forward. This guy's dead and gone. His manuscript comes to a scribe, and they say, hey, copy the scriptures. We want to get that version. And he sees, huh, there's this note in the margin. Well, now, the guy who wrote that's dead, and I don't know if, did he make a mistake and forget to put that in? Or was he trying to make a, con I don't know. I don't want to lose anything. This is the word of God. I'll put it right in where it makes sense. And so he put it in. And one of those manuscripts then that was used by the King James Translation is that manuscript of the guy who put it into the text. And so they thought, there it is. It's in some. It's not in others. Maybe those guys made mistakes. If that's the case, we don't want to lose anything. Let's put it all in. So that's what they did. So then they go and number it. So now we have all this information. We know that should have been a marginal note. So that's where we put it in our Bibles. Little note down at the bottom or on the side of your Bible. It's still there telling you someone at some time in church history wrote that out, 
But we realize now that's not in the best manuscripts, not in the most ancient manuscripts. That wasn't initially what John wrote. And if you're a Christian studying the Bible, you need to know what John wrote, right? Because what John wrote as the author of that book is theonustos. God breathed, authoritative, binding on your life, something useful for you to know and believe, right? So this is how this particular verse, verse 4, gets put in there. And the reason the new manuscripts don't, uh, the new translations don't go back and renumber all of that so that you never see verse 4 is missing is because if we do that and you start to memorize a text out of the ESV, but you knew John 5, 12, well, it's not John 5, 12 anymore. It's John 5, 11, right? And so you'd be like, well, I'm so confused. I'm so they just take four out, put it in the margin, and then carry on. And so it's there. You can see it. And here's the crazy thing. Everything I just told you, you can learn and know, and you can see all the argument, all the information about why these decisions were made. It's all available to you. Everything's open. Nothing's hidden. So I harp on this, and I went all, you know, short for me, but long for you, I get it. Because if you don't understand and believe in the word of God and trust in the word of God, you're not going to grow as a Christian. And this strikes right at the heart of that. If you don't think you can trust the Bible that's before you, if you don't think that translation that pastor preaches from every week that's sitting in those pews is really the word of God, then you're not going to grow as God wants you to grow. And so it's important, and I, and I got to harp on it, and I got to teach you that. And like I said, I can explain all of this, and we can go through all the passages, and there's so much great information on this. And I'd love to have those conversations. I find it personally, personally fascinating. But I want to just encourage you, don't build your theology of these type of things from memes on the internet, okay? Or from YouTube videos. There's a lot of unsound teachers out there who, who are not... They're not the person that God has put in your life to help you grow spiritually. That's, that's why you're here. You're part of this church. So please come to me. Please come talk with me. Ask these questions. They're not dumb questions. They're really not. I'm never going to go, I can't believe you're so worried about that. You should know this. I'm going to help you grow. That's why I'm here. It's what I would love to do. All right. So three different areas where there's traditionalism, right, that can impact us. And we could talk about a lot more, but we don't have time. I'm going to end this right now. We could talk about how our tradition sometimes uh, impacts how we think the order of service should be, the way tithes and offerings are collected, the way a sanctuary or a building should be designed or decorated, right? There's fights over the color of carpet in different churches, but that all comes from traditions. And what I want us to realize is that traditions are not necessarily bad. There are things God has said clearly. You must do these. In fact, I I did a whole series called Assembly Required where I said, here are the things God commands us to do. These are the traditions we have to follow, we have to do to obey God. There's a whole series of that. I'm not saying it's all, let's just throw it all out and pick what we like. Nothing like that at all. But what I am saying is most of us have deeply rooted traditions and expectations and views that come from our upbringing, from our raising, from our experiences. And if we let those things become primary in our life, then we, like Peter, will be tempted to miss what God is telling us to go and do and how to grow and how to see his mission furthered. So, the challenge is that people today often, just like we confuse facts and opinions in our life, right? Someone says, no, no, that's not the way it is. Like, that may be your opinion, but facts and opinions are two different things. Sometimes we also confuse traditions and true religion in our spiritual lives. And we need to guard against that. You need to be aware of that. Traditions can be good and useful, but they can also present a danger and a temptation towards the sins of pride and partiality. So we must humbly guard against that. 
And we're going to explore that more in this next message next week. Because Peter is being confronted by God on his pride and his traditions here in Acts chapter 10. Because on the heels of that vision, on the heels of what God is saying to him, on the heels of what he's trying to work in Peter's heart, those men show up. And I'm just going to read the next four verses where we'll come back to next week. Verses 19 to 23 says, So while Peter was pondering the vision, again, he doesn't get this right away. It's working over in him. The Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, has been directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in to be his guests. And the next day he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. We're going to come back and pick that up and what God does there through Peter in this encounter with Cornelius next week. So worship team, if you'll come now, we're going to sing in these final few moments of worship a a song to help us take a breather, take a few moments, a little bit of space to ask ourselves, okay, God, what what is it that you're saying to me? Lord, what is it that you you want to to work on in in me? Are there areas in me that, that, you know, I have some tradition, I have maybe some pride about me following that tradition that, that are keeping me from really hearing you and following you and doing what you would have me do? All of us can pray that prayer today. And if you're not a Christian, if you don't really have a relationship with the Lord, and your tradition has just been, I'm going to show up to church, and I'm going to put on the external appearance, and I'm going to do the things I see other people doing, hoping that gets me good enough with God, let me tell you today, that's that's not the way it works. Tradition won't save anybody. Your external actions alone won't save anybody. So if you haven't ever accepted Christ, man, today's the day to do that, to, to lay down the tradition, to lay down the, the actions, and to really enter into a relationship with him. And if you're a Christian today, this is our time to respond and be grown by the Lord. That should be our desire every single week, to grow more and more into who he wants us to be and what he wants us to do. So we call it response time, and I've been calling it for the last several weeks a readying time to make this time to be made ready, right? For what comes ahead, what lies ahead. You don't know what it is tomorrow that is in store for you. So take this moment to pray, to get close to God so that you're ready for what comes. Let's sing and respond in these last few moments and we'll close in prayer here shortly. We're gonna close in prayer here in just a moment and I, and I hope you've let the, the Lord, the Holy Spirit work on you and, and maybe bring a few things up in your heart things that he wants to work on, things he wants to change, things he wants to grow you in. And I'm going to ask Wendy if she'll pray in just a moment, and uh, we're, we're at 11.56, and so, so we're breaking traditions a little bit. We usually are out at about 11.45. Uh, that's kind of our, our typical tradition, right? And we're a little flexible there. But we're already breaking that one, so here's what I'm going to ask you to do, or at least think about, or at least be open to. Usually we get out of this place pretty quick. You know your favorite path out to your car and off, you know. And I get it. You got lunch and things to do. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Maybe, maybe, if the Lord's putting that on your heart, that your tradition has been, I'm getting out of here within two and a half minutes, to linger just a little bit today. Talk to somebody that you don't normally talk to. You know, we bought these, these nice chairs out in the foyer, and it's a great place to sit and have a conversation. I've had like four or five of them out there this week. It's great. Maybe try that. I get it with kids, I understand, but, but here's the thing, really do 
listen to the Lord as you prepare to leave today and say, is there someone I should talk to? Is there someone I should spend a few moments with? Don't rush out of this place. There's no need to. The lights don't turn off at a certain time. Wendy, would you close us in prayer? And uh, then we'll go and we'll respond to the Lord today.